Jesus came and said to them, All authority and in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we come before you, we seek your face. We look to your word for guidance. Lord, we are um, beggars, merely showing other beggars where to find bread. And this morning I pray that you would show us what is the mission of the church. What is our call as individuals? What is our call as a church? And Father, I pray that for those this morning that are too comfortable, you would disrupt. And Lord, I pray that for those who are disrupted this morning, you would comfort. We ask it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So this morning, we really only have one point, which is the mission of the church, but we kind of have four sub-points, as you'll notice on your bulletin, so it's kind of sneaky. Um, what we have today is the worship of the church being fueled by worship. Also, that the worship of the church is given by authority. Third is that the worship of the church is to make, or I'm sorry, the, the mission of the church is to make disciples, and fourth, the mission of the church is accomplished by Christ in us. So follow along. So as many of you know, like I said, I'm new here, and I've only really been here with my wife and, and baby girl Eden uh, for about a month. And um, we have spent the last four years before coming here at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. And this was a really great time. We had a lot of good experiences, made a lot of good friends, but it was also a really difficult season. And in this time, we accrued, I think, 220 graduate hours between the two of us, three degrees. We had 12 different part-time jobs at, during our four years there. Uh, it was just an incredibly taxing season for us. And by the end of our time there, we were really ready to celebrate. And at the end of our time there, they have a ceremony to commemorate all that you've been through and to confer degrees upon you. And you know what they call that ceremony? They call it commencement. They don't call it graduation. And I think that's kind of curious, and I think it, it kind of captures something that even after all that work and sacrifice and, and effort and, and agony and pots of coffee in the morning and, and writing papers in the evening, after all of that, they call it a beginning. And they're trying to capture that after all of that, it's only now that the true work and the true mission begins for those who are graduating. And I think what's happening in this passage is very similar. So far in the book of Matthew, we've seen the incredible life of Christ and all that he's come to accomplish being manifested among us. And in this, this passage of chapter 28, uh, we're seeing a culmination or a pinnacle to the entire book so far. And, and yet, this passage is not the conclusion. It's really just the beginning. Because it's only now in the story of Matthew does the true work and the true mission of the church actually begin. And so, it is for us that we need to really take heed and listen to the words here. Because in this passage, we see the mission of the church. So let's look at our first sub-point that uh, the mission of the church is fueled by worship. And this will be in verses 16 and 17. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. 
And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. So I want to point out real quick that as it says that some doubted, the nuance in the Greek of that word doubt is really a hesitancy. And so what we see is that they were overcome by the risen Christ, that this man that they followed for three years and seen him do incredible things, now he's been crucified, died, and buried. He's standing before them. They worship him, and yet some hesitate. And one of the commentators says that the word should be a little bit more understood like this, that the disorientation produced by an unfamiliar and overwhelming situation. And I think that's true. And I don't know about you, but for me, a lot of times when I come in here on Sunday mornings, I'm hesitant too. I doubt in a sense. And I come in here into the presence of the Lord and it's hard to let go of all of the uh, worries that I have, my bills, my job, uh, my family dynamics, all these things. It's really difficult to swallow the fact that Christ is risen and that I should worship him now. And so... It's this overwhelming situation even for me, and I think for a lot of us. And so this passage, I want you to understand something, that in the Greek, the indicative precedes the imperative. This is talking about verb tense. And I promise this is important. This will preach. This is not just a bunch of seminary stuff I'm spilling on you, but this is good stuff because the uh, indicative is a state of being or a statement of certainty. And in this passage, that's the worship. The disciples worshipped. That's for sure. And then after that, the imperative comes, which is the making disciples. And so I think there's a gospel implication even in that, that we need to understand that we are in Christ, and that's a gift. And out of being in Christ, we are called to serve. And so in this passage, the worship is the indicative And the command to make disciples is the imperative. And that needs to be understood because our worship fuels our mission as a church, as believers. Our worship fuels our mission. And why is that? It's because it's only in here when we can turn our hearts to Jesus that we're able to see the beauty and the majesty of who he is and what he's done for us, the grace that's been offered to you and to me. It's only in our worship that we can take our eyes off of ourselves for a minute and then out of that be sent to the world around us. This should compel us. Putting our eyes on Christ in worship should compel us to share that with others. Some of you know that I'm also a Tennessee Volunteers fan which means that over the last old decade, I've been in kind of a cranky mood. Um, last night was no exception. But week before, had an incredible game, incredible game. And we were down. The odds were against us, you know, overwhelming odds. And we took the lead finally in the fourth quarter. And then, of course, Georgia, they come back, and they are winning. And in the last 10 seconds of the game, we have this one last opportunity. We're about at the 50-yard line. Our team, just they're, they're ready to go. Our guy drops back, and he sends this bomb. I think it goes by Jupiter and Pluto. And it, it comes back in the atmosphere. The ball's on fire. It's incredible. And all of our receivers are in the end zone. All the, the Georgia defenders are in there. And our guy climbs the ladder. He catches it, comes down. Touchdown, place goes absolutely nuts. Unbelievable story of overcoming odds 
And you know what? I was compelled to share that story. I wanted to talk about that. But why is it that I'm so much less compelled to talk about my Savior, to talk about the Lord that I worship in here? <laughs> is it really because maybe I worship college football more than Jesus? I, I don't know. I mean, we could, we could talk about that. So I think we got to understand that we really do talk about the things that we're passionate about, don't we? We talk about the things that we love. Maybe that's a mom with her, her children. Maybe that's a little boy with his toys or even a big boy with his toys, ATVs, what have you. Perhaps that's um, talking about your hobbies or college football or, you know, you, you throw me a softball and let me tell you about triathlons. I'm just going to... Maybe you like to talk about yourself. I think we all, on some level, like to talk about ourselves, and we like to find validation for who we are. We like to worship ourselves, in a sense, and see if other people can, can do that as well. You see, worship reorients our hearts to what's true and important in our life with Christ. And it's out of that that we're sent on mission. Look with me at verse 18. This will be the mission of the church being given by authority. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Let me just ask you, why do you think Jesus would say this? So far in this account of Matthew, we have seen the authority of Jesus manifested in cleansing the leper, a virgin birth before that, casting out demons, healing the sick, calming the storm, raising the dead, causing the blind to see, causing the mute to speak, healing the man with a withered hand, walking on water. We've also seen the transfiguration of Christ on the mountaintop, prophesying of Peter's threefold denial of him. We've even been told that the people were astonished at his teaching because he taught with authority. And Jesus now, the man, the Son of God, rising from the dead, conquering sin and Satan and death, is standing before them. And he says, I have been given all authority. We already know that, don't we? Why would he tell his disciples that? And I think it has something to do with him proving who he is and claiming the authority that has been given to him. And so we see in Daniel a really interesting passage. It's on your quotes and notes. It says in Daniel 7, And to him, talking about Christ, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is a picture of totality in his lordship. This is Christ being over all things. It was prophesied about him. He's claiming those promises about him now, and he is saying, it was not only my right, but it was given to me. So I think this has a lot to do with Christ empowering us. So many of you know so much more about authority structures than I ever will because of your relationship to the military. We're all privates in the Lord's Army. And if it wasn't for political connotations, I'd call him the commander-in-chief, but we'll suffice it to say that he's a general. And when a general speaks to a private, he listens. The authority here is given to us by Christ. 
So we are his emissaries sent on his mission. We need to adopt his mission. But we also need to understand that what Christ is doing here, I think, is, is showing that he's in submission to the Father's will, even now as the resurrected Christ. He's saying that this authority of, of, of both heaven and earth has been given to him. Throughout the Gospels, we see that he never left the Father's will. He never acted as a rogue. He never acted as a rebel. He never acted as uh, in mutiny. He was always in subjection to the Father's will. And even now, the resurrected Christ is saying, this was given to me, that all kingdoms, peoples, languages, nations, they will all serve me in totality and dominion. I'm that guy. And I think he wants to empower us to send us out as his emissaries through that authority. So now look with me, verses 19 through the first half of 20. It says, go therefore. The therefore is, in Scripture, anytime you see a therefore, it's basically everything that I've said so far, the indicative stuff, now there's an imperative. Listen up, therefore. Because of this, go, therefore. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Does anybody know what Tim Duncan's nickname is? They call him the Big Fundamental. And just like Tim Duncan, all great players, all great teams, they focus on fundamentals. They're never trying to get messed up with the new fad or the new trends. They, they don't want to talk about you know, the, this fancy stuff. They just want to do fundamentals, and that makes them great. The fundamentals are sufficient. And I think it's the, the same thing for churches and for believers, that we need to constantly be driven by the basics or by the fundamentals. Even the Reformation itself was not calling us to something new, but it was calling us to something very, very old from the very beginning. It was calling us to Scripture itself. It was calling us to the principles that we see in Scripture and that shape our church and shape our mission. I don't know about for you, but for me, I honestly have often thought... Uh, without really putting words to this, that evangelism is just kind of extra. That that's just something that you, it's just kind of extra in the Christian life. You don't really have to do it. Um, and I'm going to show you here that I think that this passage is calling us to make disciples, and it's not extra. It's foundational stuff. It's it's literally. According to Matthew, the first thing that Christ told us to do. So we see that it's actually a command from Christ to make disciples. Whew. So the question is, you know, how do we do that? That's a pretty important question. How do we do that? Making disciples involves, according to this passage, going, baptizing, and teaching. And so each one of those are important for us. The going, I think, necessitates an incarnational approach. We have to leave where we are. We cannot stay stationary. This is not passivity. This is about intentionally pursuing and going somewhere. We can't stay put. We are called to be different than where we are right now. And I think this, by necessity, is just kind of uncomfortable, right? You have to get up. You have to move. You can't stay where you are. And I think 
anytime that we try to build relationships with those that are different from us, and I'm not talking about going to Indonesia, I'm talking about going across the lawn to our next door neighbor's house, I think that brings with it just a discomfort. That unless we are totally like-minded, and I think even in my marriage, me and my wife are as as like-minded as any two people or any, any person I'll ever meet, and yet there's still some discomfort there as I'm trying to understand her, how much more for me to try to understand my neighbors and try to try to meet them where they're at. And yet, I think that's exactly what this means. It, it, it comes with a certain measure of sacrificial living. We have to be willing to give of our time, of our talents, of our treasure, of our efforts. You know, instead of just being at the house um, and, and just relaxing one evening, it might mean, hey, we're going to make a meal for somebody. We're going to invite some people over. And so I think it just it, it will cost us something. And this is, I think, what Christ did for us. We have to forfeit our agenda and take up a new agenda, the Lord's agenda. And Christ demonstrated that as, as only God could, that we see Christ leave heaven. Talk about discomfort. Come to a broken, sinful chaotic world, born of a virgin, raised as a man. And then what did he do? (laughs) He hung out with the worst of us. He hung out with the sinners and tax collectors. And he was always with the the paralyzed and those who were outcasts of society. And it's just this beautiful picture of him coming to us. That in itself is sort of that picture of the indicative that he gives us an opportunity to have a relationship with him. So this doesn't say that we go when we feel like it, or it doesn't say that we, we go once a year. It doesn't say that for the extroverted, you may go while the introverted just kind of do other kind of church work. He calls us all to go, and it's a permanent stance. It's, it's con- completely consistent through the ages. So I'm not suggesting that we leave our jobs and our normal lives and we go to the mission field. But I am suggesting that we treat our jobs and our normal lives as a mission field. I do think that's what this calls us to do as believers. Remember how worship fuels our mission? It's the basis of our mission. John Piper has this really famous quote. He says, missions exist because worship doesn't. That's good. And so we should be motivated to make more worshipers. We should be motivated to see those who don't know the Lord come to know the Lord because of what we're experiencing in our own worship. So what does it mean when he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit? I think that that really is baptism, but I think it's really just bringing them into the family of God. I think that's a picture of us bringing them into the fold, which I do think necessitates sharing the gospel message with them. We can serve casseroles all day long to our neighbors who just had babies and what have you, what have you, but unless they hear the gospel message, they cannot come to know Jesus. We have to have a priority in evangelism or else making disciples is impossible. And so I think this is just a picture of bringing them into the Trinitarian, Nicene form of the the fold of God. And I honestly think that because 
it's bringing them into this fold of God. I think it, it actually is talking about bringing them into the, the family, the church, the formal institution, and having them join and be members. In our tradition, you can't actually go through this process without becoming a member. And so I think it's just part of our, our design that we were built for community. God is a Trinitarian community in himself, and so he wants us to live in community. And I think it's really difficult for us to grow in our faith and continue to progress in our spiritual lives without being in community. And so I think that this is showing us that we should be committed to the community part of our faith as being discipled unto Christ. It also talks about teaching. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So right here, I think this is about discipleship. I think this is about us becoming more like Christ. This is about us leaving our old self and becoming the new self and becoming more like Christ. And notice how it says that we should obey all that I have taught you. No, commanded you. Because he's Lord. He can command us to to live our lives in a certain way. And that includes making disciples. So in, in a real sense, if we're not making disciples, we are being disobedient. And yet, and yet he, he expects that from us. He expects our disobedience. That's why he died for us. This is really referring back to the, the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus unpacks the entire law for us and shows us that to be obedient to him is so much more difficult than you ever thought. I mean, according to that, I'm a murderer, I'm an adulterer, I'm a cheater, I'm a liar, I'm all of it. And he's showing us that to truly be his disciple in this passage of the, the Sermon on the Mount, is to live out of a practical holiness, not just a knowing who God is and not knowing a lot of facts, but really being his disciple means living a holy life. So I think that we're either, being, we're either fulfilling the Great Commission or we're guilty of the Great Omission. And so we need to be making disciples. And I think there's a cyclical effect in this, that if we obey all that he commands us, we're going to make disciples. And if we make disciples, they're called to go baptize and make disciples. And so it's this beautiful cyclical pattern that pushes us as a church into the worlds until Christ returns. Reminds me of a story. Uh, one of my good friends from Orlando, his name's Jim. And Jim is a very good man. He's a very good father. And one day Jim decided to change out the front knob on his front door, the, the handle. And this was just a really difficult thing for him because he's a busy guy. But he decided he was going to include his son in this project. The only problem is that his son, even though he's in his mid-twenties, is developmentally forever seven years old because he's got autism. And so Jim, as a good father, gives him this mission so that he can share in the work of his dad. He puts tools in his hands. He lets him do all this stuff. And Eventually, the doorknob is actually upside down. So why is it supposed to fold down? It folded up. It, it, it took him four hours. It should have taken him like 45 minutes. And I think that's exactly what's happening with us. God has given us a charge, a command, to share in his mission as a good father. And it should bring us joy. It should. To share in that work. And I think, for me, oftentimes it's very burdensome, but also... He knows we're going to mess it up. He knows we're going to be making it more complicated. He could have done it any way he wanted. He could have called all of his people to himself in an instant 
And instead, he decided to use broken vessels like you and me to share what's real in our hearts, what we worship. He wants us to share that. Because he's a good, loving father who wants us to be on mission with him. Which brings us to verse 20b. He says, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we see that the mission of the church is accomplished by Christ in us. And I I want to show you that this is the essence of the gospel, y'all. This is really what it is for us to see that Christ has come to us and that we have nothing to prove on our own. Just as the disciples throughout the gospels have doubted him, and then after his arrest they fled him, and then even Peter's threefold denial of him, and then even in verse right there, 20, 19, that they were hesitant with him. He knew. He knew that they're not up to the task. And he knows that you and I are not up to the task. That's why it's the Christ in us that's accomplishing his mission for himself. He's given us an impossible task to reach all nations. It is completely impossible without divine help. And he knows we will fail, but he is faithful to accomplish his mission. At the beginning of this book, we see that Jesus is referred to as Emmanuel, God with us. And so it is now forevermore that Christ is with us. It is Christ who calls you to himself. It's Christ who makes you more like himself. And it's Christ who works through you to accomplish his mission. And just like all the great Old Testament narratives, Jeremiah, Isaiah, name the prophet, they all have the same kind of things in common, that they're unfit for the job. They're, they're a surprising figure. They, they shouldn't be given this kind of responsibility. And then they're given this impossible task. But the Lord always assures them of his presence. And that sends them. Because that's powerful. The man who is given all dominion and authority, the Son of God, this Jesus, God himself, this man, this Savior, commissions us, the unqualified, to do the impossible. He gives them this impossible task, but he always assures them of his presence. And so now with you, we've been called as a church to a mission, both as individuals and as a corporate body, because I don't think a church can be a disciple-making church without individuals who make disciples. And so I feel convicted by that. And I think we should all look at how we're doing that as a church. But he gives us his assurance of presence. Christ is with you. So now go, love and serve the risen Lord and fulfill the mission of the church. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for your word and how you show us even in your commands that you are a gracious Lord who gives of us all that we need to accomplish your mission. It's not about how hard we try. It's about responding to the grace we've been given. Father, I pray that you would teach us how to make disciples out of a love for you, out of a place of worship. Not so much obligation, but Lord, out of a place of a heart fueled by our own worship. Thank you, Christ. In your name, amen.